Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Your next patient is getting morning headaches and having leg swelling, and has COPD and obesity. Could they have COPD OSAHS overlap syndrome? If you're wondering what on earth I'm talking about, join the club and join us on today's Deep Breath In for a full episode on sleep apnea and the new NICE guidelines with respiratory consultant Sophie West and GP Robert Kaufman. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Jenny and Navjoit. Uh, hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanath, and I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Great. I'm excited about some sleep apnea chat. You know it. I'm holding <laughs> my breath. You haven't slept for days, have you? Um, and and uh, Navjoit, hi. Hi, I'm Navjoit Larder. I am a clinical editor for the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Hi. Um, so, um, well, we're going to talk about sleep apnea, but I thought we, we must talk about uh, general practice in the UK at the moment as well. We're, we're recording this the day after the government have announced um, a brilliant, brilliant idea, really, to, to publish lead tables of how well GPs are doing at seeing patients face to face. I'm joking about it being a, a brilliant idea. Um, Navjoy, how has, how has this gone down for you? Oh, I'm shaking my head as you're talking. <laughs> SMH. Yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. It's, um, it's, it's the things you would do if you wanted to make people feel more burnt out, make people, more people leave the profession than are already doing. You know, we know that, you know, so many times in this podcast, when we've talked about kind of clinical management, we've talked about how shaming someone doesn't work. You know, um, it, it just seems like such, such a bad idea. And also completely in response to a kind of media campaign from Mm. a national newspaper, rather than it seems to me, hearing the concerns of um, the, of GP, of practices and GPs, and also, you know, taking the overall kind of voice of patients um, mm. rather than a few vocal ones. I think it's fair to say that, you know, people have had issues with access, but this to me does not seem at all like the right way to respond to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and Jenny, have you... I don't know how much you've been following this. You're in New Zealand, got other things to worry about with lockdown, but uh, I guess a face-to-face appointment isn't a thing you can probably have there at the moment. Uh, No. So we're in the current level of lockdown restrictions in New Zealand. GPs are discouraged from seeing people in person, but we're all actually watching what's happening in the UK right now with a lot of interest because um, New Zealand is kind of approaching a situation where we will be living with COVID in the community and we're working now to boost vaccination rates as high as we possibly can. Um, But most people think that we're going to be in the same situation of eventually facing a transition from kind of remote care to patients demanding more and more face-to-face access and then kind of a struggle as to how to make that transition when general practices remain unprepared with respect to ventilation and other types of precautions. So we're all watching very keenly what's happening um, in the UK right now. 
Yeah. It feels a little bit like, um, I know that gaslighting has become a term that's used a bit too often these days, but, you know, we've been told, oh, you have to do things more online. You have to offer online access, telephone appointments. So we do all that. We spend a huge amount of time and effort doing that. And then we're told still not to see patients face-to-face first up. And then um, and then you get <laughs> get this as, as a result. It's very, very odd and, and very demor- demoralizing. It is completely demoralizing. But also I think like fixating on the kind of mode of yeah. delivery of appointments kind of is missing the point. It's about the clinical need. And I think, mm. you know, you have to leave practices to decide how best to address their kind of clinical need that maybe there are some kind of best practices that people should adopt but I think by sort of choosing a kind of arbitrary number of face-to-face appointments that doesn't seem to Mm. me to get at the problem which is that we do have a um, a crisis of recruitment and how how can you deliver the best Mm. care with the numbers that you have that will involve some kind of combination of delivering appointments in different ways to address the clinical need in your area. Yeah. There's the other thing though, which I think was our first ever episode was about teleconsulting, wasn't it? And we talked about um, what we might be missing out from when we're on the phone. Do you remember we had Fiona Stevenson talk about? Yeah all that stuff that goes on in face-to-face appointments that it's, it's it's very hard to quantify or describe, but it's very important. And when I see the, the sort of daily mail headlines, I sort of feel that's just a very bad way of expressing that, that kind of value that people place on the face-to-face yeah. appointment. And, and how can we be sensitive to that? I want, want that. I want, I want that more than I want a dozen telephone calls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me too. Um, I think the, yeah, so I, so I think there's. I, I wish there was a bit more emphasis on on that, or I wish it was being expressed more as um, we really like face to face appointments. You know, you know, we really want them back, but let's do that in a safe and appropriate way. Yeah. Um, rather than a lot of GPs I hear saying, "But it's fine on the phone. Why, why, why do we need to do face to face appointments?" Which, which I think maybe misses the point as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And it sort of sets up this false opposition, which I don't think exists. I think what everyone wants is probably similar, which is good care for patients. I mean, that's my good faith interpretation. But, um, you know, uh, I I agree with you, Tom. Mm. I'm struggling to think of another example where a strategy of naming and shaming has ultimately motivated anybody else (laughs) to kind of I don't know, come round to the thing that mm. is ultimately unsupported. Yeah. I'm not sure that motivation is what, what the government wants <laughs> to do. You know, I think we feel a bit like unloved and that, that perhaps there are plans for primary care that don't so much revolve around GPs, but maybe that's the motivation. And on that depressing note. I know. Should we? <laughs> so the plan for today's episode <laughs> was actually to have a bit of escapism because we we do talk on the, this podcast quite a lot about the the wider things going on in general practice in the world um but isn't it nice sometimes just to, to talk about something really clinical and you know that's what we're trained for and that's what sometimes just learning about a disease or condition and getting a few pointers on it is is really nice so I thought we'd we'd really try and focus on that today how does that sound yeah, that sounds good. Our, our listeners can't see this, but your face is really lit up, Tom. If you were sort of saying that, which is um, I'm just so bored of talking. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm bored of talking about 
politics and the depressing real world stuff. Let's just talk about a a disease or syndrome in this case. Yeah, let's do it. Not at all real world. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So sleep apnea. um, uh, Tell me sort of anything you find interesting or remarkable or not about sleep apnea to start us off. Jethi, not to go on. Yeah, I'll pick on you. Um, you like it? You 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 see it a lot. You. I'm gonna go with probably an interesting mix of underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed, mm-hmm. whereby some people are probably given the diagnosis for reasons that they don't necessarily deserve, and there are lots of people probably living with it who don't get mm-hmm. appropriate treatment or evaluation. Yes, yes, that, that does seem about right, doesn't it? Um, it's one of those concepts that we you only re- ever really refer on it when somebody comes in and says, you know, my partner said I'm not breathing at night. It's not something perhaps that we kind of opportunistically kind of think of. Is that is that fair to say as a, as a diagnosis when you're reviewing somebody who might be at risk of it? Uh, very occasionally if someone comes in with tiredness or fatigue and they... I fit a sort of probably a, a sort of awful stereotype in my head of, of who that patient is, yeah. then I might ask about it. But yeah, usually it is like the classic consultation is usually um, usually a man, um, maybe accompanied by their partner who's got like a phone recording of them and that you get, you know, they, they play you like the, um, the ethnic well, episodes. Exactly. And you're like, oh, yeah, that, does, that does sound like quite a long pause. And um, yeah, and then you do a referral. But I, I always, um, and you know, you might do some, uh, some like lifestyle discussion uh, if if they're up for that about, you know, like, weight or whatever but um often I feel a bit like is that you know what more could should I could I be doing Mm. in primary care because often it's like okay go and have a sleep study but I I do often think that there might be more I should be doing Mm. how long of a wait is there now in the UK for a sleep study because that was the Mm. major barrier for me um when I was practicing in New York um after, do you know, I, I mean, locally, I think you'd be waiting many, many months, you know, it might be up to a year or something to to have your diagnosis, but maybe it's less. I'm sure it varies a lot. Yeah, I think it is, it is variable um, and, and that might vary over time as well. Yeah. I, I don't recall it being as long as a year where, where I've worked, but can, yeah, I'm sure it can be. Yeah. So, um, so there's been some uh, nice guidelines published recently on um, obstructive sleep apnea syndromes, which um, which is kind of where the, the idea for this episode came from. Um, so there's a, a summary in the BMJ of of those guidelines, uh, and um, I was fortunate enough to to be to editing that that article, and loads of really interesting things came out. So I thought, um, why not have a chat with some of the people involved? Um, and reached out to yes yeah, Sophie West and Robert Kaufman who are um, she's a respiratory consultant he's a GP and um, I asked them about some of the things that cropped up when I was reviewing that uh, guideline for the BMJ summary uh, and that's coming up after this from our sponsor.
When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical Protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. Let's go to that interview with Sophie West and Robert Kaufman. And eCare app. We're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify... Hi, I'm Sophie West. I'm a respiratory consultant in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and I'm the lead of the Regional Sleep Service. Hi, Sophie. And we also have with us uh, Robert. Hi. Hi, uh, I'm Robert Kaufman. I'm a GP in Binfield in Berkshire, um, but also have been doing ENT and sleep clinics for the last 20-odd years in, in the community. And both, both of you are involved with the recently published NICE guidelines, is that right? Yes. 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 Okay, well, so we'll go on to that. So the, the first thing I want to ask you about is um, sleep apnea, as we tend to sort of call it. Uh, but for the NICE guideline, it's now called OSAHS. Can you tell us maybe, Sophie, about that? And is it okay for me to still call it sleep apnea, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Call it uh, uh, sleep apnea or OSA. I guess the term obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome is its full title, uh, recognising that people on their sleep studies have both apneas, stopping breathing episodes and hypopneas with decreased airflow, sort of half breathing episodes. The key thing perhaps to note is the use of the word syndrome. OSA means on a sleep study, you've got evidence of stopping breathing. The syndrome means you are affected by daytime symptoms of uh, from unrefreshing sleep and fragmented sleep. So that's the important right. bit. Right. So it's not not just having apneas, which which sometimes I guess that's one common presentation in general practice. Um, maybe I'm sure Robert, you've you've seen this. You know, my partner see me stop sleeping and then go from there. Um, uh, can we get into some of those symptoms then? Because there that is an interesting part of the guideline is. Um, quite a long list of symptoms that um, can be present in OSAHS. So can we go into some of those, Sophie? So in the guidelines, it recommends uh, if people have two or more of the following symptoms that you consider a diagnosis of OH. <laughs> OSAHS in them. Um, so those those symptoms would be the classic ones that everyone knows about: snoring, witnessed apneas, as you mentioned, Tom, unrefreshing sleep, but also recognising impacts of unrefreshing sleep. So including waking headaches, uh, excessive daytime sleepiness, tiredness, or fatigue. So broadening that definition of sleepiness to include what women often feel, which is tiredness or fatigue or complain of. Um, recognising that people with fragmented sleep get up to pass urine at night, choking, some people complain of waking, feeling that they were obstructed and couldn't breathe, plus insomnia due to the sleep fragmentation, 
And in some people, maybe their partners have noticed cognitive dysfunction or memory impairment, quite a subtle uh, symptom, but but one that we recognise is is part of the list. Yeah. Um, And Robert, maybe if I could go to you on this, because these all sound very familiar symptoms. You know, if there's not a day where we don't have somebody coming in presenting with feeling tired or maybe nocturia, those sorts of things, and perhaps not thinking of this diagnosis, um, first and foremost, at least in, 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 in practice? So I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, we tired all the time is probably the most common symptom that people come to a GP with or tell them over the phone these days rather than seeing them. Um, and of course, not, not having the face-to-face, we can't see how obese they are and so on. Because most of these, I would say 80% of the people I see anyway are overweight and quite okay. a lot overweight. Um, and 15% of the other people have, would have an anatomical abnormality of some kind, so receding jawline or a big overbite or uh, things like that. Um, and then 5%, I think, just don't know why. I don't know if Sophie would agree with that, if, uh, if that's what, yeah. what she comes across. Absolutely. But I think the key there is, Robert, not everyone is overweight or obese who has OSA. And it's thinking about it in those people who who aren't necessarily, who may have other medical conditions, and particularly thinking about type 2 diabetes, hypertension, especially treatment resistant hypertension. People with cardiac arrhythmias, AF is quite a common one, um, linked to OSA. Uh, moderate or severe asthma we've there's good data to say there's a lot of overlap and a lot of those people have OSA polycystic ovary syndrome down syndrome hypothyroid acromegaly and then this unusual condition called non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy which the ophthalmologist yeah that one (laughs) which trips off the tongue the the ophthalmologist diagnosed this but it's people who wake with sudden visual loss in one eye so they've gone blind in one eye overnight and there's really strong data to show the link with osa so we're really keen that these people are referred and and to be fair many ophthalmologists are already referring them and they recognize the link and do we do we know which way that works then is it that having osa puts you at risk of these things and, and therefore treating it might help or is it the other way around that you know you 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 have diabetes or or whatever and and then you get OSA very good question Tom there are certainly overlapping risk factors and obesity is a key one um but we know that OSA the physiology of it you get intermittent hypoxia with each of these apneas uh you get huge um, pulse rate rises and sympathetic activation when you wake up, a bit like whenever we're woken with a call at night, big blood pressure rise, big heart rate rise. Uh, And that has a lot of um, impact on blood vessels, stress. And we think that affects, uh, you know, your cardiovascular system, uh, but also blood vessels in the eye as well. Yeah. Okay. So um, going back to the, my, I'm thinking of like my, my telephone or hopefully face-to-face consultation with, with somebody, um, they might have two or more of these symptoms. And, and I guess the, the trick I always pull out or have always pulled out of my bag is, well, let's do the Epworth scale. And, you know, if that's normal, then, uh, you know, I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to refer you. Now I can try not to, but uh, you don't probably don't have sleep apnea, or at least if you did, um, treatment isn't going to really be worthwhile or something like that. Uh, but that's not the case anymore, is it? Yeah, so we learnt doing the NICE guidelines from the GPs that they've been quite restricted on who they could refer in and it was limited to just people with high Epworth sleepiness scales. 
So the message here is please don't use the ESS to, to rule in or out obstructive sleep apnea. You can have a normal, uh, normal ESS and have severe OSA. So don't use that as a screening tool. The NICE guidelines do recommend using it, um, but recognise that it performs poorly for sensitivity and specificity in diagnosis. It, it doesn't uh, give you why you're sleepy, though it might tell you that you are sleepy. It doesn't tell you whether you're a shift, you know, it's shift work, OSA, new baby. Um, mm. The DVLA use it. So we do think it's a useful tool and we do see that it responds to treatment interventions. So hence why it's still in the guidelines, but not as a rule in, rule out, please. Yeah. And uh, Robert, is that, is that, you know, how do you feel about that as a G, in your GP kind of role? Definitely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I use it, um, but I don't use it as a, as a marker for re onward referral yeah. after yeah. a sleep study. So I will, you know, like Sophie, you'll get a patient who has um, you know, an AHI apnea hypopnea index of 50 per hour and desaturations of 50 per hour, but have an ESS of five. Mm. Um, you know, they still need treating because actually when you speak to them, they will still say they are completely knackered all the time but their answers on the ESS are different. And the other people that often tell, uh, don't tell the truth with an ESS are, are drivers, HGV drivers, right. taxi drivers, and so on, because they have been told either by their GP or out there in the public that they'll lose their license if they yep. say they've yep. got, you know, they've got, they've got uh, OSA or they've fallen asleep in the car and so on. Yeah. So they lie. Yeah. Well, they will. That's, that's, that's human nature, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yes, it's a great screening test. But it shouldn't be the only screening test, in other yeah. words. And there's the, the stop bang as well. What's that about? Stop bang gives you a risk of OSA. Uh, it was designed for preoperative populations in Canada to see how many people going for surgery had a risk of OSA. Uh, we, we see it's used a lot in that sort of setting pre-op or maybe everyone gives them out in a diabetes clinic or a hypertension mm. clinic. And if, it, if there's a high risk of OSA, they're then referred for sleep studies. So I think, you, you, you know, that's well recommended. The British Lung Foundation uh, supported that in primary care a few years ago. So it's, a, it's another good screening tool. The only thing to say about it is it uses classic symptoms of OSA. So um, that's snoring, apneas, daytime sleepiness. But as we mentioned, those other symptoms that you might have, insomnia, sleep fragmentation, tiredness, which perhaps more women complain of, if they aren't due to another reason, they could well be due to OSA and the stop bang wouldn't adequately pick them up. This may be just my practice, but I was certainly taught that, you know, talk through what the treatment actually is before you refer, because, you know, if the person thinks actually there's no way I'm going to use use that CPAP thing, then... Uh, what, what's the value in, in, in knowing? Um, and the guidelines really recommend you, CPAP for for most people, or even with mild mild obstructive sleep apnea, if, if it's affecting their quality of life, if I've got that right. I guess my concern would be if we, we know it's well tolerated by patients uh, who we give it to and we will support them to use it, we'll pick an appropriate mask, and generally it's fairly well received. 
I'd just be concerned about someone who was less familiar with modern CPAP and modern masks, potentially introducing a bias to a patient that makes them not want to have it when they haven't seen or heard about the full full gamut of what we have to offer. And actually, by the time we have people, we have very few people looking at it and running away. They're very keen to engage with it and, and generally are you know, pretty grateful to have it and, and get good results. So I, I would yeah, refer yeah. them and let us discuss treatment options. And especially with these new good, nice guidelines, if we're able to offer more, it would be good for us to have sleep apnea of severity from a sleep study, symptom scores, and then discuss treatment options with them as to which avenue we think they should go down. So we'd be happy to do that within the sleep yeah, services. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, if there's any CPAP manufacturers listening, they could maybe send me send me some sample. No, don't do that. That's. But I I think I probably do have that bias, and uh, that's helpful advice. Thank you. Um, what I um, what I always say to patients mm, actually is mm. when I'm referring them on is saying you know the machine actually makes much less noise than you, so your partner's actually going to be very happy. <laughs> and I think that, you know that's that's one way of selling it to them in 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 the first place. Yeah, yeah. Because then most of them come to see us actually because their partners told them to come and see us, not because they they are, they are doing it themselves. And if any of your listeners did want to just look up CPAP and go to one of the manufacturers' websites, I get that they're all quite handsome people using it, but they do. It does show you how discreet some of the masks are, um, and how fashionable the machines sitting on the bedside table are, and, and you might all feel pleasantly reassured by it. Okay. And they're small, small machines. Yeah. Uh, and so in terms of writing that referral letter, then, uh, is there anything in particular that you really want us to say as GPs? Thanks. So uh, if you have taken uh, a stop bang score or an Epworth sleepiness score to include those results, please. But a bit broader, as we've said, that's not the be all and end all. So how sleepiness affects that person? Do they have comorbidities? that we might want to try and prioritise them so that they have ischemic heart disease or arrhythmias. Um, really, are they a vocational driver or in a vigilance critical occupation? So we, we often have uh, many services have a fast track pathway where we can try and get uh, vocational drivers through more quickly as a way to try and make sure they come to sleep clinics to get a diagnosis. Those, those would be the key areas. So I thought that was quite a sort of optimistic, you know, I, I feel quite optimistic about um, being able to to help people, you know, and diagnose people with this problem and and help, which um, which is nice, isn't it? What did, what did you make of that? Yeah, I really appreciated um, how, how um, Robert in particular noted the diagnostic dilemma of somebody coming in with fatigue. I mean, who is not fatigued right now? Find me <laughs> the, the phrase, um, find me just one is really <laughs> common in New Zealand right now. Uh, but anyway, find me just one person who's not fatigued right now. And, um, you know, it's always our work to try to say, okay, where does this potentially, um, mean that you have a condition that needs diagnosis and treatment. And um, so I found that really interesting and really appreciated um, Sophie highlighting some of the 
particular dimensions of those systems that of those symptoms, excuse me, that might be more mm-hmm. common in women. Um, I suppose I was left with a question kind of where, where treatment will make a difference other than in kind of symptomatic improvement. If, if sleep apnea has been linked to all of those other conditions, which I truthfully did not know, um, will treatment make a difference in some of those kind of metabolic, uh, outcomes Mm. as well? Yes. Yeah, so, so as in by treating the sleep apnea, might you get an improvement in the blood pressure or? Yeah. 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 I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure the answer to that, but um, I think it might be un- uncertain. Let's say that. <laughs> probably, I can probably safely say it's uncertain. <laughs> um, I, I thought that the idea of using the, this stop bang questionnaire in, in like a diabetes clinic was interesting. Um, until she said it was it was sexist, so uh, <laughs> you know that was a shame. But um, you know, I, I guess we could do a bit more sort of case finding, couldn't we? If we know that that you know it's it's much more common in certain groups. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely that that interview. I've I've learned a lot, and I've made a lot of notes, which I'm going to dutifully um, put into my appraisal portfolio because wow. I think I think there was a lot for me listening to that that I think will be practice changing. I'm still using the Epworth score, and kind of that mm. has been kind of pivotal in you know for me previously, and I, I think it has definitely challenged my the stereotype I carry around of like when to suspect this. And I was just thinking while, um, while listening to that interview about, um, I don't know if any of you have seen the film Wine, Co- Wine Country, which has got Amy Poehler in it on Netflix. No. But in that Amy Poehler, uh, Amy Poehler's character uses CPAP for sleep apnea. And I just Googled it and that is her actual CPAP machine. <laughs> and um, she has sleep apnea in real life. And I was just thinking, okay, you know, remember Amy Poehler, who is, you know, she got it when she was quite young and she talks, I was just reading an interview where she talks about how um, living her life just kind of sleep deprived and then CPAP has kind of changed her life. And so she's a big kind of advocate for it now, which I also thought was very interesting, Tom, the point about the bias we might bring about Mm. CPAP, because I always feel sort of slightly hesitant bringing it up with people that, you know, all the treatment is this kind of treatment that you're not really going to like, but actually when you think about it in terms of the potential impact it might have for people that that might be a bit unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Is Amy Poehler, is that, is she the one from parks and recreation? Yeah. Yeah. She is. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. This film is not that great, but um, uh, (laughs) it's got a CPAP machine. So, you know, suggest it to patients of like, if you want to see a CPAP machine, what one looks like, go and watch wine country Uh, on Netflix. Okay. (laughs) Top tip: We can. It's, they they should have added that to the nice guideline. They should have you on their committee. <laughs> well, I think there are a few kind of pop culture. It's this is like me in my zone now. It's like okay, <laughs> the interzone of pop culture and medicine. But um, I think the Sopranos, a character in Sopranos, had um, had a CPAP machine, mm. and um, and Joey in Friends also went for a sleep study. I don't know if you remember that Did episode he? where he bothered Chandler with his snoring. Not. <laughs> Which again, I guess, is challenging that um, notion of it being, um, you know, an overweight or obese man in middle age who kind of gets this. Mm. Thank you, Dr. I, I think we. 
Where Sorry, do we go from that? It's lowering just... the tone no, as usual. Well, <laughs> just... I mean, that was that's impressive kind of <laughs> like, yeah, like television and cinema knowledge. Um, I can't compete with that, but I can say that snoring is extremely annoying um, <laughs> if you're not used to it, right? Like you have, like <laughs> you, you get used to the sounds in your own um, sleep place. And if you're not used to snoring and then you're kind of um, on a vacation with somebody you don't normally share a home with, it, it is, it can be extremely yeah. bothersome. So I particularly appreciated um, the line about how the machine is um, going to be quieter than the- <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, well, sh- should we move on to, the- we've got a second section of this. So it, it keeps coming, the, the, the tips. So, it, you know, people might want to just take a break because their brains are so full of, 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 of knowledge. But okay, let me just go and type this up into my portfolio yeah, okay. and, then, and then let's come back to the next interview. <laughs> uh, so the second part was about uh, something else in this guideline, which was um, obesity hyperventilation syndrome, uh, which I'd never heard of. Have you, have you heard of this? I've heard, I've heard those words before. <laughs> In that order? But that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Jenny, can you beat that? I I have definitely heard of this condition and the context was in a conversation um, around sleep apnea. So I'm not surprised that they're linked again in this guideline. Okay. Well, before we embarrass ourselves anymore about how little we know, should should we listen to uh, this interview and learn more about obesity hyperventilation syndrome? OHS is obesity hypoventilation syndrome and it's a fairly simple definition of people with obesity, a BMI of greater than 30, with daytime ventilatory failure, so raised carbon dioxide or venous bicarbonate, and evidence of sleep disorder breathing on a sleep study. So it's probably a diagnosis we're making in secondary care rather than in primary care. these people have a higher morbidity and mortality because of those extra factors than people who just had OSA on their own. So it's people in whom their weight is causing ventilatory failure in addition. Okay, so it sort of happens as well as OSA rather than instead of, or is it like two very overlapping groups of patients? As well as, so you might imagine someone who's uh, had OSA and then if they gained another four stone they develop ventilatory failure. Okay and is there anything like in primary care we can do to sort of identify these these patients so they are they like you say picked up in in secondary care? Whilst the definition is the BMI of greater than 30 I think it's fair to say it's usually much higher BMIs. Uh, most people have a BMI of greater than 30 don't they so so these people generally are higher BMIs unless they have lung disease or unless they are on chronic pain medication where you may see a degree of ventilatory failure at a a lower BMI. Um, They may have lower daytime saturations. You might pick that up if you're checking those. Uh, They might have waking headaches, though you can get those just from poor sleep, as we can all recognise. And they may have signs of pedal edema, with corporal monale from their obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Okay. So they'd be things to be alert to. Mm. I suppose we, we, we often 
or we're used to the, the idea of uh, to lower baselines for saturations in certain people with, with COPD. Is that, again, are we thinking those patients as well could, could be could have this or is this again different group of patients just I'm st- so so this new guideline included those people with copd osa hs overlap syndrome and really gave recognition to this being a prevalent problem two prevalent diseases copd and osa but when they occur together in in a person we call it the overlap syndrome and I think these guidelines will raise awareness of that in, in people. Mm. And so if you're seeing someone with known COPD, but you're picking up low saturations and maybe morning headaches and pedal edema, to just think about could they have OSA also mm. and therefore referring them for sleep studies if so. They're mm. not all obese. Uh, there are some slim people who, who have the overlap syndrome. Okay. And Robert, what was your take on this as in the guideline committee as the GP there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I already knew knew about um, most of them, not as much about overlap syndrome, and um, but certainly doing that. Yes, we see a lot of these people, don't we? Um, hmm. But I think probably the easiest thing for GPs is still to just look at it as OSA um, uh, with regard to because it's the same patient group. Uh, the overlap is slightly different. As Sophie said, you can often have very thin, obviously, people with COPD and so on have it. But certainly the um, obesity hyperventilation syndrome is the same group of people. Okay. Um, but often they are very obese, yes. So yeah. these are the really obese patients that, that you have. And I gathered from, from the guideline that basically they'll do a venous blood gas and if it's and that, that's how you diagnose it. Is that is that right? or? So we do a sleep study and some some measure of ventilation, so either an arterial blood gas or a venous bicarbonate to screen. And just to say for GPs, if you are suspicious of this, um, please flag it in your referral letter because this group we'd like to prioritise because of the risk of ventilatory failure mm. and the risk of them being admitted to hospital with acute ventilatory failure if they, say, had pneumonia on top of things. So please flag it. Saturations, if you've got them, um, if they'd had previous admissions with COPD exacerbations, if they'd required NIV in the past um, or admissions to ITU, etc. For, for both that those obese groups and the COPD group. In terms of treatment then, um, is, is the treatment, or where are we with the evidence for, for how effective treatment is? I guess I'm thinking of like mortality and sort of quality of life. Is it Does it work? So in obesity hypoventilation syndrome, there's now robust uh, RCT evidence that the NICE guidelines looked at that recommends CPAP, if you've got severe obstructive sleep apnea as the underlying cause, and if you've just got mild sleep disorder breathing, recommending non-invasive ventilation to, to support. But one type of mask and machine therapy really improves outcomes in terms of uh, morbidity, quality of life, sleepiness. For the COPD OSA overlap syndrome, it is an RCT free area at present. But again, it's become a research recommendation in the guidelines and you really hope that raising awareness will raise uh, priority for research to be taken in this area. Mm. But we currently would use CPAP or NIV uh, in, in that group too. Yeah. And and maybe that, that just makes me remember one of my favourite things, which is about sort of uh, research in primary care. I mean, is there, is there much 
data from primary care because we know most most of the time this is sort of extrapolated to primary care from from secondary care i'm not talking sleep in particular but um yeah do we know much about particularly symptom and likelihood of of of, of these syndromes with with various symptoms from a primary care um data set i think it's fair to say there have been some studies but a lot of the guidelines used clinical expertise to to recommend on the symptoms that we should be looking for it's more awareness really mm. that's that's mm. the big thing is that, that there is a you know even from my partners in my practice you know they they uh, they're just totally unaware of it mm. until you mention it and then for a few months, you may get a lot more referrals and then it goes away again. Yes. Forget about yeah, forget it's about not it. something that's that's there all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's often at the moment, I think, is more patient led, isn't it? Um, it that, is. Uh, that yes. They're the ones that's mentioned saying, my wife says I stop breathing or my husband says I stop yeah. breathing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and that's when you pick it up. You yeah. don't auto, even I, I must say, I'm not particularly good, even with all my experience, at in a general patient you know a day of just seeing normal general patients mm. of thinking about it and picking it up um mm. especially not because at the moment obviously as, as much face-to-face stuff is going on mm. and just to say if a gp sees a patient who has no real symptoms of osa but their partner's very concerned about lots of snoring and lots of stopping breathing episodes please do consider referring them for a sleep study because we do find significant obstructive sleep apnea in these people we offer trials of CPAP treatment and many people come back saying I didn't realize I had all these symptoms which are now better so there are symptomatic benefits and also cardiovascular risk benefits in the seemingly asymptomatic person I just want to start with a correction from from that. Um, I did say there that one of my favourite things was research in primary care, and that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good question, though, it, whether it's your favourite thing or not. Yeah, I think, I, think I, I was exaggerating there, but um, I, I do like to ask the question about, is there any research data on this in primary care? But yeah, you know, I think my favourite things are more like, tennis and you know <laughs> no you've football. said it now tom you <laughs> know you you can you can be you can be proud about that but i i think it's such a good point isn't it about you know actually how much of this evidence base comes from a primary care population we see it so much don't we with so many things that where it isn't it isn't based on people in primary care uh, and robert there being being making the point which kind of brings us back to the start of the episode about you know seeing people face to face and maybe that's one of the the other things is just the, the visual kind of cues I suppose or um, maybe we think slightly differently when when the person's in front of us yeah yeah although like reflecting on like the, what, what I felt quite confronted by while listening to this is you know how much those visual cues matter and actually perhaps bias me in the wrong direction as well sometimes you know where I might not consider obstructive sleep apnea um in someone but I I mean yeah I I think it is it is an important point yeah also it's really difficult to demonstrate pedal edema over (laughs) over tele appointment unless someone's (laughs) making a lot of effort 
That is true. That is true. So now, shall we, shall we write an article together for the Daily Mail about supporting their campaign? <laughs> <laughs> That's a real U-turn from where we started this episode. We've really, we've really been on a journey. Uh, and that's probably a good good point to, to wrap up today's episode. Uh, my thanks to Sophie and to Robert. Uh, and thank you, of course, to Jenny and Navjoy. See you next time, Jenny. Thank you. See you next time. And Navjoy. Thanks very much. See you next time. And we'll be back in a, a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please uh, go onto your podcast app and leave us a review or give us a, a rating or if you want to get in touch email practice at bmj.com i'm tom nolan i'll see you next time bye for now <laughs>